sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Hey, thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's it's an exciting week, uh, and there's as before we started the show, uh, we wanted to kind of mention that on Friday there was a huge news item that we're not going to talk about, but I thought I'd at least mention it, uh, and that's that the Attorney General Barr received a report by Special Counsel Mueller uh, about five o'clock on Friday that summed up the findings from Mueller's investigation into the Russian attack on the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Barr's notified congressional leaders, and he is, quote, uh, reviewing the report, and he anticipates that you're going to have portions of it shortly, end quote. But of course, Ken and I, we can't really talk about something that hasn't come out to the public yet. No. <laughs> uh, and so, but I did want to let you know that that is on the politics guy's radar, uh, but that will be coming once we have some additional information. And of course, that assumes uh, that the White House uh, is going to let that out. Uh, they're not going to have any kind of potential um uh, block on it. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, but for now, we'll leave that in the hands uh, of the State Department to determine. And instead, what we're going to turn to this week is, I think, a, a story that has really flown under the radar. And I'm happy to get to do this one with you, Ken. And that is there is the court cases moving forward, the District of Columbia versus Donald J. Trump. And the question of this case is whether President Trump is violating the Constitution by accepting payments from state officials and foreign diplomats at his Washington, D.C. hotel. Now, what's really interesting about this, for those of you who haven't read the Constitution lately, is that it all comes down to this really antiquated word. You've probably never heard of it uh, in the Constitution, and the meaning of which has not really been ruled on by the courts. So it's not often that we have new constitutional issues. And the issue and the word is emolument. Am I saying that right, Ken? Uh, they usually say emolument. Emolument. Okay, we'll see. I'm learning yeah. something. Uh, I've only ever, I've never only ever read it. I mean, again, this, this doesn't come up in con law, people, right? Like, this is not, <laughs> not a... that often. Yep. <laughs> uh, and it's only mentioned three places. It's found three places in the Constitution, uh, two of which aren't really pertinent for us, Article 1, Section 9, and Article 1, Section 6, in which case it's talking about Congress and the ability of Congress not to have uh, have this in connection with foreign entities. But the court case at hand is actually looking at the third instance of it. And that's in Article 2, Section 1, where it says that, quote, the president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected. And he shall not receive within that period any, I'll say that word one more time for me, Ken. Uh, emolument. Emolument from the United States or any of them. And the idea yeah, well, well, I got to st stop you though, Trey, because actually I think the Article 1, Section 9 uh, uh, emoluments clause is actually even more relevant to the case uh, the, than, than the other clause that you well, mentioned. Well, let's talk about it then, Ken. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the Article 1, Section 9 clause says no person 
holding uh, any office of profit or trust uh, um, under the United States. So it applies to all federal federal officers, including the president, but not just the president. Without um, the consent no, of no, Congress. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no person holding any office or profit of trust uh, shall, without the consent of Congress, accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. That, that clause is uh, very much at issue in this lawsuit. And let me just say, I mean, I even had to turn to trusty old black law on my shelf. <laughs> and it, it defines it as, quote, an advantage, profit or gain received as the result of one's employment or one's holding office. And as I understand it, and as I've read the briefs for this, the question between uh, the Trump uh, Trump administration uh, and uh, and the District of Columbia is how narrow or broad that word means. In other words, because Trump hasn't divested himself of his companies, is he getting whatever this is going to be defined as or not? So can you tell us a little bit more, Ken? I mean, am I missing? Is Has there been a case on uh, on this term or am I right in saying that I, I had not found one? Yeah, I'm not aware of any Supreme Court case where this term has been litigated. There, there are some older opinions by the White House um, Office of Legal Counsel, which is the um, the branch of the Justice Department that um, often is asked to write uh, kind of research memoranda on uh, the meaning of obscure constitutional clauses that haven't been litigated yet. So, <laughs> so, so there are some OLC memos um, that that go into the meaning of it, uh, but not, um, yeah, not not any Supreme Court cases that I'm aware of. So if if you were litigating this issue, uh, where do you think the court, I mean, obviously, uh, in this case, I mean, it's moved forward. So the fact that they've accepted it means that they think there's some con- there's something here to be adjudicated. What's your take on that, Ken? Uh, and whose side would you rather be on if you, you could pick one? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly on the plaintiff's side. Um, uh, I, I believe there's been a violation of the emoluments clause here. Uh, so the, the, I, the, the theory of the case would be uh, that, um, that when foreign um, uh, dignitaries and delegations uh, stay in the Trump hotel and pay higher prices than they would pay, you know, just, just for the, uh, needing a place to stay um, for the purpose of currying favor with Trump, that, Would that it even least, have to be higher prices? I mean, if they're just if they're just receiving anything, isn't there an argument to be made there that you violated it in and of itself? Yeah, there, there absolutely is. Um, but I think it's it's made easier by the price being higher, right? So, so, so you could argue, uh, right? At your yeah. So what you said would be um, an argument that um, you know, let's say a hotel room is worth two hundred dollars and Trump charges two hundred dollars, and the Saudi ambassador stays there for two hundred dollars, so it's a fair price. Um, you know, even then, you know, since Trump is making some money off that two hundred dollars, you could say that that's uh, an emolument because whatever profit he's made, it's coming from a foreign state. But I think what the plaintiffs are actually arguing, which is I think makes the argument a little easier on the facts, um, is that the Trump hotels uh, charge very high rates relative to their competitors, and that these um, foreign foreign dignitaries do like to stay there anyhow. And there's some evidence in in depositions and such that they. Um, they say, yeah, we want to stay there so we can tell Trump that we stayed there. Right. right? So, that, so that that um, is, um, I think, real evidence that at least part of the price being paid um, is a foreign dignitary giving money to Trump in a way that's visible Trump to Trump to curry favor with Trump. And uh, so I, I would think that goes within the core meaning of uh, emoluments. So now, that, I mean, that kind of seemed to be that way. Now, the, the, the Trump brief suggests, however, yep. that it has to be designed 
in other words, there has to be intent. So it can't just be compensation, but there has to be effectively, uh, you, they're getting it for that expressed purpose. So that because this is incident, in other words, I have a business that's going to happen anyway, they would actually have to be kind of paying me off. Uh, what do you think about that art? I mean, that, that's the kind of the crux of the brief from yeah. uh, the Trump side. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to that argument. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that's wrong, but I think on these facts, um, the actual facts in this case um, establish that that is what's going on, right? So, so in other words, if if Trump owns something like a um, you know a casino, and uh, you know some some foreign dignitary went and played blackjack in the casino, and Trump literally never knew about that, um, then you know what Trump is arguing is well, then there's no emolument because he. He, you know, how could it be occurring favor if he never even knew? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair argument. I, I, I agree with that argument. But I think what the, what the facts in these cases are showing is that uh, the foreign dignitaries are very much making a point of telling Trump that they stayed in his hotel. And, and everybody knows that the, the, the rate that they're being charged is very much above the going rate and that the reason that they're paying it um, is just to, to, to hand money to him because they're occurring favor and they make sure that he does know that. So that's why I think on those facts, this is an easy case. I don't, I don't really disagree with Trump's interpretation of what the clause might mean, but I do disagree with his interpretation of the facts that have been established here. Now, this is, this is what I had kind of wondered, and that is, is that generally speaking, one of the reasons this has not come up is that presidents have, have put their finances, uh, to kind of put it, say, it, it, this isn't technically correct, but in a blind trust in a way, meaning yeah. that they are not uh, directing it so that what you're saying would would have to be the case, right? So maybe I'm making a killing on, you know, the casino, but I don't know that I own that particular casino or pieces of that casino or, 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 or uh, stock in that casino. And ergo, it can't influence or not influence me one way or the other. Yeah. What's unique about this is Trump not being willing to divest himself. Are there and I've looked at this a little bit, but have are there other examples where presidents were not willing to take this step where this happened, uh, but has not been adjudicated, uh, at least in the contemporary era era? I can't yeah. find any examples of that. No, no. I mean, this I don't know how long there's been a White House ethics office. Uh, I don't know when that started. It doesn't go all the way back to the founding era. But in all the years that we've had a White House, well, White House ethics office, we've never had a president refuse to follow the advice of the White House ethics office on what they need to, need to do to divest. So I think, you know, you've had a lot of rich presidents, but typically their wealth is in things like stock holdings. And so they would, you know, give the stock holdings to a financial manager in a blind trust and say, you know, go ahead and trade trade my stocks, but don't ever tell me what, what's in there so that no decision I make could be influenced by what's in there. So we have never, we've certainly never had a president, you know, say in the 20th or 21st centuries, um, in the period that there's been a White House ethics office who has been given advice about how to avoid um, undue influence and corruption and, uh, and, and not taken that advice. This is, uh, it's novel and unprecedented. And that's why I think it leads to an unprecedented uh, violation of the emoluments clause. So kind of my final question on this as we move forward and, and one that I'm interested in is there's of course some politics to be had here if you're the Supreme Court. And I don't mean that in the sense of just conservative and liberal justices attempting to make ideological decisions. Uh, but uh, the case of 
does this would the court want to rule against the president if they don't think the president's going to actually abide by that ruling? Uh, I mean, that has come in into play a number of times in the Supreme Court's history. So how do you think the Supreme Court handles this, given that it's probably a delicate question for court power as well as for the interpretation of this clause? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends what happens in the lower courts. So one one result that I could see, um, which I, I'm not sure the Supreme Court would necessarily disturb, would be um, if if the if the lower court, it's going to wind up being the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that'll get these cases. Um, if, if the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately um, orders the Trump Organization, which is a, a corporation, to disgorge some money um, to these plaintiffs, right, and uh, and says, yeah, you've you've um, because of your violation of the emoluments clause, you've made some excess profits um, in violation of the emoluments clause, and your your, your competing hotels and such have uh, lost out in unfair competition because people who stayed in the competing hotels couldn't partly bribe the president by staying there. Um, so the Trump Organization has to pay a money judgment to um, some competing hotels. You know, I, I think that it wouldn't be. Um, the Supreme Court might not take that case at all. They probably would take it because it's a novel interpretation of the Emoluments Clause. But I, I don't think there'd be a, a chance of um, presidential resistance if the Supreme Court affirmed that. I'm not saying they will affirm it. Maybe they'd reverse it. But if they actually affirmed an order like that, and it was a judicial order against the Trump Organization to disgorge money, then I think that order would be enforceable. I really don't see how um, the, the president would be able to obstruct enforcement of it. Yeah, that was just a, you know, kind of a, a, a question that had kind of floated around in my head. Uh, but I'll be interested to see how this case moves forward. So the second issue that we want to take on, and this one hits maybe a little bit closer to home uh, to both of us, of course, neither of us are at research institutions, is this week on Thursday, President Trump signed an executive order designed to protect free speech on college campuses. It drew wide applause from conservative groups uh, and more muted applause from college administrators and bafflement, I think, uh, from many faculty. Uh, it note, he, uh, President Trump himself at the signing said, quote, under the guise of speech and safe spaces and trigger warnings, universities have tried to restrict free thought impose total conformity and shut down the voices of great young Americans, end quote. He also noted that the executive order was just the beginning. And I think that's one of the things that makes this investigation today interesting to talk about. Uh, This is the beginning, he says, of our efforts to protect free speech. Now, if you actually read the executive order, you're going to see it's actually not just about free speech. It's also about the way you can have openness in uh, finances. But on the side of free speech, uh, it says that the purpose is to, quote, promote free and open debate on college and university campuses, end quote. And it's tied to the idea that doing so uh, is going to, in uh, if you don't do this, that there's going to be an imp- impediment to beneficial research and it's going to undermine opening. Now, that's the policy, this idea to engage institutions to foster environments that promote, quote, open, intellectually engaging and diverse debate, end quote. But how does this actually going to happen? Well, it's the uh, the executive order says that uh, federal agencies are going to have to take appropriate steps. And that is left undefined to ensure institutions that receive federal resource or education grants 
promote free inquiry. So what does this mean pragmatically? It's very unclear. Uh, A lot of it is probably a symbolic move to make the right a little bit happier about what they see as being a hostile leftist environment on campuses. I don't see this having a big impact in the policy realm, but it is worthy, I think, to kind of talk about one, because this seems to be the beginning of more as Trump states during the, uh, the, uh, during the signing, uh, signing ceremony. And two, because does this win him some points in, in the political realm? So, Ken, what do you think about uh, the executive order? I mean, do you feel like speech is going to be more free come next semester? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, I always hope that speech on campuses will, will be more free, but I, I'm not sure I, I believe that there's as many threats um, as, as Fox News might say. Um, when I first read the Washington Post article and actually and suggested to you that we talk about this, I hadn't yet seen the executive order. And as I'm reading the executive order, just, um, you know, just in preparation for this show, it's it's pretty uh, uh, weak, I think. It's pretty weak medicine. There's really nothing in there. There's some there's some language um, of, of purpose that um, that that, there, that there's a um, there, there's a, a it's the policy of the federal government to um, encourage institutions to foster environments that promote open, intellectually engaging and diverse debate, mm-hmm. um, including through compliance with the First Amendment. Well, I mean, for the most part, most universities right now today would say um, that they exist to promote uh, open, intellectually engaging and diverse debate and that they do comply with the First Amendment. So um, so so pushing them in that direction, um, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be any pushback on that. Um, so, uh, perhaps the, uh, you know, maybe there's maybe some different conceptions here about, um, what it means to promote open intellectually engaging and diverse debate. And if I could kind of read between the lines a little bit, my sense is that, um, maybe the, the real controversy, um, involves, uh, people who are not members of university communities, um, who want to have access to, uh, campuses, um, you know, so the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world and people like that who um, who want to want to go onto campuses um, that they're not part of the university community of. And I think some universities, you know, may not feel that they have to uh, open their doors um, to just anybody who wants to come there. Um, although I think pretty much every university would feel that their own faculty members, their own students, uh, you know, would, would, should have um, a, a complete um, freedom of speech rights in, in, in substantially all respects that the order uh, is concerned with. So that's that's kind of what I read. The, the question of um, kind of, you know, uh, touring um, right wing speakers, I suppose, uh, who aren't part of university communities. I think that may be who this order is really directed to protect. Well, and it's interesting. What, what I find a little bit unique about it is, uh, and just to kind of give a little bit of my bias, uh, I, I was involved. Are you familiar with uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education? I'm a paid up member. Okay, fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, with, you know, I, I think that there actually was a time when that there were some First Amendment issues on college campuses. But I think through the works of institutions like FIRE, many of those have already been undermined. So I see this really more as a position take by the White House than it really is, as you're, as you're noting. There's really no teeth to this. I think the hard work has been done by other institutions uh, leading up to uh, – you know, leading in, in decades past um, to this point. So it's – Yeah, it's, I mean, actually, to, to agree with you even more on this, I, I think FIRE – you know, they, they've litigated some cases, but actually I think the most significant impact that they've had 
is not in cases that they had to litigate against universities, but in really kind of raising awareness uh, with university administrators nationwide about working on policy. Yeah. What kind of policies most benefit free speech? And I think, uh, you know, uh, most universities have been very open to that kind of input. It's not like fires had to fight them. It's really like fires just had to explain some things to them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'll say, I mean, it was in the, you know, in the 90s, he, he mentions, for instance, these safe spaces. Uh, but in some ways, that's a reaction to getting rid of free speech zones, which were areas on campus, in some ways, were used as a way to try to make speech more uh, orderly, but oftentimes was pragmatically uh, a problem because it then relegated what people could say to, to zones that didn't matter and in ways that couldn't matter. Uh, and it restricted the way that students generally could talk. But that that's really primarily a thing of the past. Uh, it's just that's I'm fa- again, once again, Ken, it is fascinating how from different points of view, here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Also, you got to and you got to you got to also wonder uh, if Trump's coordinating coordinating his messaging on free speech with uh, Devin Nunez this week either. Yeah. Nunez (laughs) suing a bunch of critics the same week that uh, Trump is extolling free speech. Well, you know, there there's free speech and then there is uh, there's free speech against. But yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting for, for for me for me at least. I guess it bothers me a little bit in the sense that I feel like he's co opting what you know an issue that I think is important, but has already had a lot of push on, and and I I don't know. So that for me at least, I find that a little bit uh, problematic. But I mean. I guess I'll take yeah. a win where I can. Right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think the idea that um, uh, in, un, universities should be encouraged to promote open, intellectually engaging and diverse debate and, and should comply with the First Amendment, I think is something everyone in America should agree with. And if, if that's what this executive order says, you know, well, that's that's just, that's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's the it's the appendix to uh, the First Amendment there, in case you weren't sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now, as we kind of as we move forward in the show, the next issue that we want to take on is jobs in the economy. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this, listeners, is because it's another under the radar item. Uh, One of the things that we just discovered is the job market touched its best. Uh, We have our lowest unemployment in 49 years. Uh, And so the U.S. economy has actually added jobs for 100 consecutive months. Uh, Unemployment uh, sat last month at March at 3.7%. Earnings are increasing significantly, especially when we take a look at Latino and Asian populations. Uh, African-Americans, their uh, earnings are up, but just not as dramatically as, as in other categories. Um, the Federal Reserve is not raising rates uh, as because Mr. Powell says his ta- tells Congress it's time to be patient. On the other side of this economic boom is there's the question of the federal def- deficit. Uh, in February, we hit two hundred and thirty four billion with a B. That's a record deficit is a result of government paying back more in corporate taxes than it took in with the corporate tax rate down fourteen point three billion. So as taxes are going uh, down, spending is heading up. As a matter of fact, it was 145.6 billion in comparison to the same period last year. And the debt surpassed the 22 trillion mark 
for the first time in the country's history. And it's and and for you, Ken, I think there's a couple of questions here. One is we have uh, we oftentimes have this separation between what people are experiencing currently and the deficit. Republicans and Democrats, and this drives me nuts, everybody hates the deficit when they're not the ones creating the budget. But as soon as they have control of the budget, then, well, deficit spending is absolutely fine. What do you think about these numbers and what do you think about the cost? Yeah, well, first, I, 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 I'll, I'll push back slightly. I don't think Democrats are as bad about deficits as Republicans are. And, uh, you know, even when Democrats uh, enact ambitious spending programs like the Affordable Care Act, uh, the Affordable Care Act, you know, spent a trillion dollars and didn't um, increase the deficit by a penny because it was it was fully paid for through uh, new, new taxes that it imposed. So, you know, I think it's really the Republicans that are willing to do the tax cuts without corresponding spending cuts, but that when Republicans and when Democrats want to do spending increases, um, you know, Clinton, Obama, they, they did tax increases. So they they found ways to, to pay for those things. It wasn't purely out of deficit spending. Clinton, in fact, you know, gave us the only budget surpluses. Um, and I know Gingrich played a role in that, but Clinton and Gingrich gave us the only budget surpluses that this country's had since the 1950s. Um, That's true. So, yeah. So, so um, yeah, so I, and, and, and Obama um, decreased his deficit every single year that he was in relative to the year before. You know, he started with huge deficits because of the 2008 bailouts and everything. But, um, but you know, Obama's trajectory was always good on, the, on that point. So, so I, I, I think that it's not uh, equal blame to go around. Um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, it's very hard to know what deficits like this are going to mean. They're very, very hard to get out of because when the debt grows like this, then so much of the current budget has to go to paying interest on the, on the huge debt that that just makes it harder and harder to get out of a deficit situation. So um, I guess we'll learn, you know, soon what, 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 what that means. Uh, the jobs numbers, you know, it's true that they've continued to um, improve. They improved, I think, every single quarter of the Obama presidency and uh, have continued to improve some in the, in the Trump presidency. But it's, I, I actually don't think that this particular quarter um, is, is, is especially significant because this quarter you actually had, you know, a significant number of the jobs are just the, the federal government had been shut down. All those workers had been furloughed. And when the government reopened, that alone, you know, accounted for, um, you know, uh, some of the, 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 the 0.2% increase in jobs that we saw uh, this quarter over last quarter. So I see this a little bit more as a status quo than a, a great leap forward, but certainly it's a status quo at a good, at a good level. I mean, while that is true, the it, that can't account for all of that shift. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, you were saying we were three point seven percent unemployment, which which is great, but you know, one quarter ago it was it was three point nine percent. So it's it's a it's a little bit of an improvement. But I'm just saying this quarter isn't. I mean, there's been improvements every quarter for a long time now. So that's. Oh no, it's definitely a trend. Yes, I see what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, Ken. yeah. 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 So, so well, to say, well, we're we're at the best ever. That could literally be said every every quarter. You know, for 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 eight or nine for about eight years now. You know, every quarter we could have said jobs are the best ever. So it's true, but it doesn't well, seem to me to be no you know, because this this is going to be the first time it's at this level since you know for 49 years. So this is the lowest it has been. So while I guess what you're saying is true, they have been trending down. We have now trended down so long that we have hit a 49 year low. 
Yeah, but I think that was true last quarter and the quarter before uh, as well. 3.8 was not. Uh, 3.8 and change was the the last lowest. Yeah, but but I'm saying when we were at uh, 3.9 or at 4.1, you know, to find times it was that low, you would have also had to go back uh, um, many many years. That's uh, that is a little that is true. It's just not as far back. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I guess, I guess I'm just saying I, I don't see. I mean, I mean, we're probably agreeing more than we're disagreeing. But I think my <laughs> my slight shade of disagreement here is I, I don't think Americans um, could could say well the economy is much better today than it was six months ago or, or one year ago. You know, I think it's more, it's a little bit better and it's been a little bit better, you know, every, every quarter um, for, for quite a while now. So that adds up, but, but, you know, you only experience it as getting um, a, a little bit better. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I think what's interesting in about the conversation today though, is, is it going to continue to trend down? So is it, go, is this a bottom is it going to continue to trend down? Uh, and the reason I bring that up, Ken, is kind of put it into some uh, broader context here, is for, for listeners you might not know, is that there's really two competing models for predicting presidential elections. One focus very heavily on poll numbers, favorability ratings. Uh, in other words, how many people favor a president versus have strong negative feelings for the president. Uh, the other uh, major model focuses on structural features, and it suggests that things like the GDP, prices, inflation, etc., those kind of structural economic concerns, uh, are the ones that actually determine whether incumbents will win or they'll lose. And those models, of course, downplay what I think many of our listeners focus on, which is those day-to-day political events, those campaign events, uh, that so-called favorability. And what is uh, coming out right now is that most of those structural models, as we start looking forward and predicting 2020, are suggesting that Trump, if these kinds of trends were to continue, would actually kind of a blowout victory. As a matter of fact, uh, one uh, one famous model has Trump winning with 294 electoral college votes. Even if the economy remained stagnant or got a little bit worse, he would still end up winning on those, on those particular models. So one of the reasons for being interested in these kinds of uh, these economic positions is how well or poorly will the uh the president potentially do in a matchup so what do you think about those competing models and and do you think that even if this is just quarter on quarter uh, a trend that's been going on for years is this ultimately a a a win for trump well it's obviously better for trump to have the economy that he's got than um than to have an economy that was doing worse but i i don't think it'll (laughs) i I don't think it'll uh be be as dispositive as as all that i mean those models um you know, the, the, you know, they would have predicted that um, uh, Gore would have won in, in 2000. They would have predicted that um, Hillary Clinton, who wanted to carry on uh, Obama's policies, would have won in, in 2016. Those were good economic times. Um, now, admittedly, those were um, term limited presidents. And so it was um, they themselves weren't able to run for reelection. But but I, I, I also think that. Um, the economy, well, just to be clear, the 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 structural model actually had uh, Trump winning. When in 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 sixteen, mm-hmm. how could that be based on the economy of sixteen? Uh, because for prices and inflation, those issues were bad enough, and you have a non you have a, what's called a, is it nobody is the incumbent, so there's no incumbent advantage on the economy in an open election. 
Well, there wasn't any inflation in 16. I don't I, 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 I don't remember exactly what the unemployment was, but it wasn't it wasn't terrible. Uh, it, it was this is a pretty good economy in 16. It wasn't horrible, but uh, interestingly, that particular model um, and oh my, I actually have the name of it here uh, had had a, a, it was wrong on the popular vote count, but was very close on the electoral count. So it was, it was off on the uh, what, what they, they saw Trump is actually winning by a little bit in the popular vote, which obviously did not happen. Yeah, that's that surprises me that economic models would have predicted that. But I, I, I think also. Um, you know, on the economy, uh, the, the economy is good in some ways, but in some ways it's not so good because um, I'm not I don't think the voters are going to vote on the deficit. So I don't I don't think that's going to be a huge electoral liability. But I think voters um, are concerned about inequality. And I think um, a, a lot of working people s- uh, see the economy improving in, in ways um, where the economy as a whole is improving much faster than their wages are going up, you know, where, where corporate profits are going up much faster than, than wages are going up. Productivity is going up much faster than wages are going up. And interestingly, part of this story, of course, of, of jobs going, um, uh, the, the unemployment rate going down is that more and more places are putting in the $15 an hour minimum wage. And, you know, some people might have thought that would slow down, um, you know, that would cause some unemployment, but very much the opposite's been true. So I, I think that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, to the extent that Democrats are going to be running on the $15 minimum wage and 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 on higher taxes on the rich. Um, you know, these are good issues in today's economy, as strong as today's economy is, because um, uh, growing inequality and 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 I think stagnating wage growth for many people is is part of today's economy as well. Now, that's one of the things that I was interested in myself. But when you take a look at median weekly earnings since 2007 and 2008, uh, they've actually increased across the board, uh, most so as you move forward from uh, 2014 to 2018 for those with less than a high school diploma. Uh, and now part of that really could be what you're suggesting, which is, is that in locales, they have increased those minimum wages and maybe that's driving up those numbers. But if that, uh, if those percentages in, uh, remain, so for example, in uh, 18, we're just shy of seeing less than a high school diploma, uh, having a median weekly change of about 29% uh, positive in income. Will that, will that, the as you as you suggest the uh, taking a look and saying well we have this extreme inequality will they still be feeling I mean it can exist but how much will it be felt because I think people vote on the feel of what's happening there rather than the actual what's happening there yeah well that may be right and then that, that makes the actual statistics less relevant but if that's true but i i i, well, think I guess that, what i'm saying uh, is is yeah, the statistic yeah. that might matter uh more is not the the, uh, the disparity in income but rather what the poorest individuals experience changes so if your poorest experienced individuals are experiencing a large change even if they're still far worse off than the average uh, uh better to do individual so upper class person they're probably not as likely to care about that if they feel like their income is increasing which it has recently so what i'm suggesting is that will the will the wage disparity between the richest workers and the poorest workers matter if the poorest workers are experiencing significant increases in their weekly earnings 
Yeah. So, right. So I, I, I would say, I don't think that they are experiencing what feels like significant increases. So, um, you know, so I think I'm looking now that the, the median, um, weekly earnings of full-time workers, um, w- w- you know, went up by, uh, uh, 5%. Um, according to BLS, I'm looking at the BLS statistics as we're talking, and uh, that's five percent higher than a year earlier. Um, that, that's you know that's not trivial, but I still think um, a, a lot of people are, are are not feeling like they they took home a huge raise, and I think a lot of people are feeling like they have a lot of job insecurity. They're being asked to work harder than ever. Productivity's going way up, and uh, they're they're cut working for companies that are profitable, and they're not seeing their wages go up that much. So I think that's a political sentiment that um, I believe a lot of Americans have, but I guess we'll find out in in the election. No, I mean I think you're right, but it, uh, that's that's where I think it's going to be the question. So you you think that they're still feeling that more uh, on that individual level, and therefore you'll you think that will be a salient issue in the upcoming election. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the $15 minimum wage is going to be a major policy initiative of Democrats running for Congress and for the White House. And I do think that this year's experience where you do see some wage increases, you know, as we both talked about 5% over a year ago, um, I do think a lot of that has to do simply with minimum wage increases in a lot of cities and states Um where you know the cities and states that went from like nine or ten dollars to fifteen dollars, you know that that's a that's a fifty percent or, or a thir- at least a thirty three percent wage increase in those places for minimum wage workers, and 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 that'll carry up to people who are just over the minimum wage as well, because their wages are going to have to go up, you know, if 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 people who are um, making lower wages than them come up to their wages. So so I think a lot of that isn't necessarily because um, own business owners are opening up their wallets. I think it's because there's been a legislative wave that's put more money in people's pockets and that hasn't actually hurt um, the companies that they're working for. So, so I, I think that's the that's the way the Democrats, I would hope, will frame uh, the economic questions coming into this election. But couldn't you? I mean, can't you make a free market argument here to suggest that that is higher because unemployment is lower, and so as you have a constriction in your market for labor, you're seeing a corresponding increase in the amount that corporations are willing to pay for that labor. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the counter argument, but I, I just don't agree with it. Like, I, I think that, you know, let's say you've got a, a worker who can produce um, $20 an hour of value and he's getting paid uh, $8. Um, I don't think he's getting a raise. And uh, if the law says he's got to be given a raise and paid 15, well, then he'll get the raise because he's producing $20 uh, worth of value. But if, if, if they can get that $20 worth of value for $8, that that's I think that's what they're getting, and that that's exactly why I think these minimum wage increases have not uh, uh, produced in, um, unemployment. You know, if if what I was saying wasn't um, a correct view of the world, then these minimum wage increases uh, would in fact have produced some unemployment. And I don't think there's any evidence they have. I don't think they're widespread enough to affect the national levels. I mean, as you take a look at the unemployment rate from you know ten till now, it has it has on average been dropping uh, uh, significantly each quarter as you move forward, which correlates kind of nicely with what you see as the increase in earnings. So I'm not going to disagree with you that if you, in, you know, that there might be people who are making less than the amount of productivity that they're producing for a company. Uh, but 
I don't think that you're going to, I don't think you explain those two phenomenon by suggesting that that comes from having increased the wages in Seattle and a few other places around the country. Uh, I think that's going to show up as kind of just being random error in your data at this point, unless of course you had, um, a national law that, that that put that at $15 an hour. Well, it's, it's substantially the whole West coast and that's about a third of the country, I think, because it's California too. Yeah. It's $11. 11. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew they had raised it, but I, I, if it had been a 15, I would have been, I, yeah. I, I thought, wow, how'd I miss that? But it, it's <laughs> I have 11, missed but, things before, but they raised, they raised it from 10 to 11. So that's a, that's a 10% increase for their minimum wage workers. Um, and, and that right there, that's 20% of the population of the United States of America. So I, I do think these minimum wage increases are having a measurable effect on um, the, 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 the nationally recognized uh, increase in wages. And I, I think maybe this kind of transi- transitions us nicely to our last uh, story, Ken. And that's the question about the Democratic field. And I know that last week there was a lot of time spent uh, here on the show talking about O'Rourke. But I thought it might be a little bit um, worthwhile to kind of talk about the Democratic lineup in a bigger way, and in part to kind of pivot to chat about what will be the issues that might gain traction. So if we're going to take maybe the political model over that structural model that we talked about a minute ago, uh, you know, right now we've got about 15 declared candidates. Uh, we've got Booker, we've got Gabbard, we've got uh, uh, Gillibrand, we've got Harris, uh, Sanders, Warren, Yang. Where do you see the Democratic field shaking up? In some ways, for me, Ken, it feels a little bit like uh, the Republicans in 2016, where you had just a plethora of candidates who thought they had a chance to knock off uh, the, the Hillary Clinton, the presumed forerunner. What do you think about this from the Democratic side? Hey, Trey, would you mind before I answer that question, I want to correct something that I just said, which was partly incorrect about the wages oh, a minute ago. Sure, I don't leave sure. anything partly incorrect. Yes. Yeah, so in California, it was a little more complicated than I said. So um, in April 2016, uh, California did sign a phased $15 an hour minimum wage law into effect. So they have $15 an hour minimum wage, but it goes up by a uh, dollar a year until then. So it went up to $11 in 2018. It went up to $12 in 2019. And it keeps going up uh, a dollar uh, a year, to, yeah, dollar a year until until fifteen dollars, yeah. So that's the actual that's the California. So there minimum was wage a law. fifteen. So we but there, that's why we were both a little yeah. confused. Yeah. Okay, so it's enacted, but it's not actually going to be affecting any numbers because it's yeah, this right. phased in. Okay, yeah, but it is going up by a dollar a year, so that is affecting these numbers, I think. It, okay, well, yeah, we have to take a look at what these percentages are, but yeah, I did not. That we'll have to save for another show, I think. But what do you? <laughs> Uh, So for for all these candidates, though, uh, which one is going to be able to take on to the issue of inequality? Uh, I would I'm I'm just going to kind of say that. Are you a Warren fan? That's kind of where I would feel you that we where you'd land, Ken. But correct me if I'm wrong. Well, you know, I'm not necessarily supporting Elizabeth Warren for president, although I agree with her ideas a lot and I like her in the Senate a lot. Um, I I feel like her skills in terms of policy skills. are really like legislative skills. I actually feel she is where she belongs. And uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not crazy about the electability metric, but I do feel she'd be less electable than some of the other Democratic candidates. And that also makes me a little bit lukewarm on, on her being the nominee. I don't actually believe she has a serious chance at being the nominee. Um, but on policy, so who are your top yeah, three? I, I, who's, your, who's your top three then? Who's your top three? Who, 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 would, who would I be supporting as top three right now? Boy, 
That's either hard. for you supporting or you think would be the most potentially successful that you, you could be okay with. Yeah, well, I, I feel a little more um, like it's too early for me to have come up with who I'm I'm actually supporting. That's fair. Um, that's fair. I'm yeah. just wondering. Just wondering. Yeah, but I, I am willing to do a little handicapping. Although this is, you know, you know, this is a, this and a, a dollar will get me a cup of coffee. But I, I, I feel like you know, <laughs> Biden Biden is the front runner now, and uh, you know, I basically think it's his to lose. I, I think um, you know, a lot of people just can't really believe that they would actually nominate a 77 year old, but. Um, you know, he he uh, is associated with the Obama presidency. He's capable of, of getting uh, white working class voters who are in, in many states an important demographic. Uh, you know, he's more famous than any other Democrats. Um, I, I think Biden is the front runner. So I, I think he's going to be a contender. Um, I, I The other front runners, it seems like Kamala Harris is going to emerge uh, as a front runner. I think um, she she doesn't have as much name recognition as some of the others, but she seems to um be very organized and have, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, her profile seems like it's going up. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I, I, I think Sanders, you know, I don't think he's really going to get the nomination, but I certainly think he's going to be in the top two or three vote getters. Um, you know, he, he comes in probably second most famous to Biden and he's got, uh, enormous numbers of small donors and, and motivated people who want to work for his campaign. I had wondered about that. Do you, do you think that Biden actually has a better name recognition? And I don't mean with the individuals who are listening to our show, but in mm-hmm. general, than Sanders. I have I have thought about that. I have there's been no polling head to head yet, so I don't know. But well, Biden, I, you know, Biden was vice president of the United States for eight years, and he has a career that's. Um, I guess Sanders has a long career too, but yeah. I think Biden's got an even more for more of his career. He was high profile for a longer period of time, so. Yeah, I think the only reason famous. I asked that is I was just uh, last week we were doing stuff at uh, the uh, at, here at OC, and we were looking through some data uh, that suggested that large, large majorities of people can't name the vice president currently, the past vice president. As a matter of fact, many of them actually get the supreme, the chief justice mixed up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and so again, I, that's not really a pushback on you, but it, it had right. brought to my mind questions of you know, for many young Democrats, Sanders is the guy who was running last time, yeah. uh, ex- had a lot of excitement, and while I don't disagree with any of the things that you're saying, it, it made me kind of question my own perspective uh, on you know wh- who would be more known. <laughs> Well, in in actual polls, and I mean, it's hard to know what these polls mean because there's so many candidates. But Biden is consistently coming out first in the in the in the polls that are being done. So I feel that must reflect more um, name recognition. And and I yeah, I mean, Sanders, uh, he certainly raised his profile a lot, not only by running in in uh, 16, but by continuing to um, he was out a lot campaigning for congressional candidates in 18. So he was appearing all over the place. I, w- I actually went to see Sanders uh, in. Uh, I guess in, in October of 18, uh, when I was visiting out at the University of Colorado, he came to the campus there. He was campaigning for Joe Neguse, who uh, won that congressional seat. And uh, he had a rally uh, on the um, on the University of Colorado campus. And there were thousands of people there. And, and I'm sure they were there not for Joe Neguse, you know, but for, but yeah. for Sanders. <laughs> for Sanders. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, certainly he's been a big draw among young people. He has a big following. It's a little hard to say. I think Beto uh, O'Rourke actually got more money money on his first day than Sanders got on his first day. He did. But, he uh, did. Yeah. But Sanders, I think, had it for more donors than um, O'Rourke did. It's just O'Rourke had some larger donors. So um, 
So, you know, that, uh, but it's interesting that, that O'Rourke could get more money because I don't, I, 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 I figure O'Rourke is running for vice president, really not for president. And I figure he's got a pretty good chance of uh, being picked as a vice president, as a running mate. But I, but, it, but it, you know, that, I don't know. He that, has so much yeah. baggage. I wouldn't pick him. I'd pick, pick Booker. Him? I'd pick yeah, Booker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Depends who, depends who the, uh, who the nominee is. Um, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, yeah, if, if it's, if it's Biden, I think you'd probably rather pick Booker. If it's, uh, if, and I think Biden's even been talking to Stacey Abrams. On the other hand, if it's, if it's Harris, I don't think she, she could pick Booker. I don't, I don't think, uh, you'd have two African Americans running together, um, on, on a ticket. So, uh, so, you know, I think those things, um, are factors. But yeah, but O'Rourke, if O'Rourke could raise more money in one day than Sanders could, that, that seems a little bit against the theory that, um, Sanders has the most over, overwhelming fame or overwhelming name. Well, you know, I, I guess for this point, we're going to have to, as you said, right now, uh, I don't want to bet too much money on anything. But yeah. I think, listeners, we're going to have to come to an end. Ken, it was wonderful talking with you uh, this week. Uh, listeners, I want to uh, tell you that we appreciate you so much. And I want to let you know that what makes this show possible, uh, what makes Ken and I able to come on here, what makes uh, Jay and Michael be able to come on is the fact that you guys are so, so generous to us in your support. And I want to ask that if you have enjoyed this show, if you continue to listen to us, if we're what you listen to on your commute, would you please head to thepoliticsguys.com slash support or click on the support link and you can support us on Patreon. You can support us via PayPal and those donations are what make this show possible. But additionally, uh, because we recognize uh, as we were talking about money is tight, it's not always easy to make these things happen that we have additional content. So by becoming a subscriber to the show, becoming a supporter, excuse me, to the show, you will get access to additional material, including what we're going to be recording in just a minute. And that's the bonus show. Uh, the bonus shows uh, are offbeat, interesting things that are unique to us. And for this bonus show, I think you're going to be particularly in interested as Ken and I are going to be talking about uh, some of the things that go behind why we read the way we read. And I I'd be really interested for you to come listen to that. And for that to be possible, you're going to need to head to politicsguys.com and click on support. Even if you can't, I would ask that you would share us, rate us on iTunes, make us more visible. That's what makes us continue to move forward. And for those of you who already have, thank you so much. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.